0: On the Culture Warriors. I'm your host, Alexandra Marshall, and today we are joined by Damien Curry. So, Damien's chuckling away because normally it's him interviewing me on his wonderful podcast called The Other Side. Damien, thank you for joining us today on Curtain Call, where we go behind the curtain for the Culture Wars, and you are one of our stars of the Culture Wars. So, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you're a radio jockey. Is that where you got your start?
1: Yeah, well, I wasn't a, I wasn't a disc jockey um, as much as I would have probably loved to have been. <laughs> um, I did go to university, studied journalism at the Queensland uh, Institute of Technology. It was called then. It's now QUT. Um, and I was very, very fortunate because I got a cadetship, uh, which was tough in those days. But I, I landed a cadetship in the capital city, so I didn't have to leave Brisbane. I, I got a cadetship at 4BC, the news radio station uh, back in the day. Um, and it was it was the mid-'80s. It was great fun. I learned a heck of a lot. The equipment at 4BC was like something out of the Stone Ages. I think we were using 1940s equipment and typewriter, manual typewriters, would you believe that you'd have to bash the keys really hard? To this day, I still type like that, which is annoying to people who have to work with me. Um, but it was fun. It was great fun. And, uh, and I really sort of learnt the ropes there and then 3AW in Melbourne. About a year and a half later, I got transferred down to the Melbourne station and network. And, you know, that newsroom was just incredible. I mean, it was big city for a, for a guy from a little city uh, in those days. Um, it was exciting. Darren Hinch was the big star, and they had numerous other stars on the station, Murray Nickel, and uh, I remember Neil Mitchell starting out. He's now the big star of 3AW, but it was when I, I was actually with Neil on his first day in radio uh, when he started his program, which started as a weekend show on 3AW, and I was his weekend news guy. And when they moved Neil to the drive time slot, when Darren Hinch left and Murray Nichol went up to the morning slot, um, I was I moved with Neil and became the uh, the drive time uh, news presenter on 3AW back in the back in the late 80s that was so going back a bit there.
0: Well, it has long been said by your viewers and all your new fans that you have a great voice for radio. So you you found the correct industry for you. But I've heard some very troubling rumours that you were a lefty when you were growing up. Is there any I was
1: a bit of a lefty. Well, it was hard not to be a lefty growing up in Brisbane uh, in the 1980s when we had uh, Joe Biocchi-Peterson as the Premier. Um, If you, I think it was Churchill, or it's attributed to Churchill, may not have been Churchill, who said that if you're not a lefty under 25 years of age, you haven't got a heart. And if you're still a lefty over 25 years of age, you haven't got a brain. So... um, I fell into that category pretty much. I think I started my transition from left to right probably in my 30s. Um, but I I was your classic sort of, you know, um, uh, campaigning kind of young journalist, uh, straight out of university with a whole lot of ideas, uh, not really understanding how the world worked, knowing very little about economics, or nothing, in fact, about economics, uh, as I probably should have and, um, yeah, I got thrown in the deep end. And I guess that's, that's what happens to a lot of young journalists in Australia. It's a, it's, a, it's a swim or sink sort of industry. And in those days, it was very, um, a very what you would call nowadays, a bullying work, uh, workplace. It probably wouldn't be permitted the way that we carried on in those days or the way that the bosses treated us anyway as kids. But, um, you know, we got, we got whipped pretty hard and uh, not, not literally, but we got driven pretty hard. Particularly 3AW was a tough place to work. There were 16 reporters in that newsroom. And it was the pinnacle of Australian radio news at that time. So I'm really glad I had the opportunity to work there because it taught me that it taught me heaps, actually. it was a great place to work. And I worked with some pretty amazing, um, uh, very talented radio people.
0: Well, I've I've always hated that quote about, you know, when you're young, if you're not a socialist or a lefty, then you're not kind. I think that's you're being misled if that's what you think is actually the case. Um, well, if you'd family- said to me
1: I was going to be a, jo- a supporter of Sir Joh Oki-Peterson, um, but in retrospect, in my adult life, I look back at what he achieved for Queensland economically. Um, but, you know, he I, I stand by my principles that he did preside over a kind of authoritarian, um, aristocracy, sort of run government. It was almost socialist in a sense, I guess. So in that sense, I was always liberal, always libertarian uh, always very um, anti-authoritarian. I, I, I think being my ethnic background on one side is Irish, and on the other side, oh. it's uh, it's French oh. Lebanese, um, and so I'm kind of feisty. Uh, yeah, I, I have an opinion, and I don't mind sharing it. As you may have noticed, if you listen to the show. <laughs>
0: No, uh, no, that's okay. I think that the, the politics in Australia for the last at least 50 years has been very centrist. So even our left and right are not what you consider to be the extremes of left and right of the past. Mm. Uh, but earlier on in Australia, the left was was pretty left. And I think we're seeing a return to the left uh, Labor Party with the Greens on their wing being dragged even further left than they were before. And even the Liberal Party, which the ABC like to say are somehow far right, they've actually moved left of centre to what they were 15, 20 years ago. Like my first Prime Minister, I remember, was Paul Keating and we all hate Paul Keating. But I don't think he's he's anywhere near as far left as the policies of Albanese or even Daniel Andrews as Premier of Victoria. But that aside, uh, you've obviously had a cultural shift in your political thinking. Is that from your business experience and when you actually have to go and work? Um, you changed your mind about political systems and what a society actually needed to operate and what kind of philosophy it required, particularly yeah. in
1: the business world? Yeah, I'd identified two shifts. The first was my economic shift and the second was my social shift. And the economic shift uh, occurred pretty much as soon as I'd studied some economics. Um, you know, It's pretty hard <laughs> to away. study economics I mean, and come away from it. Got to change. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not, you understand that, well, once you learn where money comes from um, and what money represents, Not like,
0: trees, it has to be put right. in by other human beings who work. Exactly. Um, so well, it's,
1: it's value creation. Political
0: yeah. Political systems, the most important thing that I think you've done is you went to Hong Kong, which has been trending in the news because. Hong Kong was this amazing jewel of East meets West for so so long. I mean, it was ceded in 1842 at the end of the first Opium Wars in perpetuity to the British Empire. And I mean, people forget that that's so long ago that Australia was only just dividing up its states when this happened. Mm. So Hong Kong has been ethnically Chinese but ideologically European for a very long time. It's not some kind of recent thing in China. Um, doesn't have the kind of ideological influence over Hong Kong that it would like. The problem with Hong Kong being that it's an island city, possibly the world's true island nation, where it is not self-reliant. If China decides uh, to cut off its water, its power, its food, Hong Kong can't actually survive. So there's no way for, this is what Margaret Thatcher realised when they drew up this, they tried to roll Hong Kong into the 99-year lease arrangement and say, well, you've got to give Hong Kong back even though Hong Kong wasn't actually part of that arrangement. Um, She couldn't defend it. You can't go and fight China to hold Hong Kong because China can just cut Hong Kong off from its supplies. Um, So when you moved to Hong Kong, were you aware of how dangerous that situation was and how it was basically a candle burning down and it would one day have to go back to China? Did you think about that or was there kind of a a
1: delusion? No, No, I very much thought about that. It was very top of mind for me when I moved and it was top of mind for me the whole time that I lived there um i had visited hong kong a number of times before so i knew what it was which was a british city basically um inhabited by uh you know uh, ethnically chinese brits um and it was not a city before the british built it um it was a rock um it did have uh, indigenous communities of course and uh and and you know so so i'm not i'm not making any political statement there but um It wasn't a very developed place. It was built uh, by the British as a safe haven when things were getting a little bit politically tough in the old Canton, which is now called Guangdong in the capital of Guangzhou province in southern China, right next to Hong Kong. And so, um, you know, it was set up in the mid 19th century for that purpose. um, And the city grew, you know, an incredible city grew, uh, an east meets west, amazing place that was unique in the world and it was not democratic under the british um so we you know there's a there's a moral question there about demanding democracy now uh but it was run like all british colonies were run with the rule of law and with a strong commitment to uh the values uh, of of britain uh, which we all hopefully still appreciate um the, the rule of law and the parliamentary system and uh you know freedom of of speech and freedom of expression and and consideration for civil liberties and human rights uh, in a way that you don't get from a communist authoritarian government. So when you've got uh, seven million people living and who've grown up four generations, five generations uh, as British subjects um, who are disconnected completely from China, um, the, the Hong Kong Chinese did not necessarily have a lot of connection with China because it was very difficult to move between um the the two states and it w- was in, well it was impossible for, for for quite a while um when you've got that sort of culture um it's a bit it would be very similar to you know China deciding it was just going to take over Sydney um and so that's the kind of feeling that the people had and I think what created the social shift for me was realizing during the um several protest periods that we had in Hong Kong the biggest one for me being the 2014 umbrella Revolution. Uh, where we had, you know, people on the streets for eleven months, uh, and I had there was a little camp outside my office on the main road there. And you really, you know, it was very hard to hail a taxi if you went out on a Friday or Saturday night. The taxi drivers would hit you up for an extra hundred bucks to take you home because they had to go a long ways around the, the streets and things. Um, but just to see such a wonderful city, such a vibrant city, such an exciting city, uh, just fall into the hands of, of communism, and and I I remember thinking, well, you know, China do things slowly, slowly. That's how the Communist Party operates. Um, they have long-term plans, and they have a long-term plan right now that we all need to be very aware of, which is to become the dominant major single superpower on the planet. And um, and they had a long-term plan for Hong Kong, and I figured it was probably a 20-year plan. Uh, the basic law, the mini-constitution that was signed with Maggie Thatcher in 1997 during the handover was supposed to go for 50 years to 2047, Um, I thought 2017 um, might be a good time to get out by. So that was my get out date was 2017. But up until then, I had no fear for my safety or fear. But now uh, I would be I'd be I'm a permanent resident of Hong Kong. Having lived there so long, it's the closest you can get to being a citizen. If you're not Chinese, Um, I can come and go as I like. I can live there. I can work there. But I would be very uh, scared, actually, to go even for uh, even on a business trip now. Sadly
0: well I, I envision Hong Kong as an iceberg floating in the Pacific, slowly melting away where there is no future mm. for it um, it can 't go anywhere. China is going to have Kong, Hong Kong one way or another, and there's very aside from going to all out war with China there 's very little the West can actually do about it to do um, to save Hong Kong. Now uh, I don't know if you saw Liu Kang, who was the Chinese Foreign Minister, came out and said that the uh, treaty that uh, Thatcher drew up, and I think it was the Sino-British Joint Declaration. He views it as an historical document of little or no value anymore. Well, it's not an historical document. It's actually a legal treaty with the United Nations approved in 1985, drawn in 1984. So, uh, so China has very little regard for international law, as we've seen uh, across. All of its dealings, like the way it bullies people with its trade, um, its membership of the WTO was on the proviso it behaved itself because it never met the terms. And yet here we are with China bullying every nation who asks it about COVID, um, it it starts to launch a to trade war. But what, we what's really
1: how- scary, I think, uh, Ellie, also uh, this week, um, uh, recently we had the announcement of uh, Joe Biden's um, uh, cabinet. Uh, and some of his foreign policy advisors. And there was a fellow, I can't remember his last name, his first name is Jack, and he's the national security advisor who spoke. And he talked about, you know, having nice diplomatic relationships and renormalizing our relationships with um, with with our uh, adversaries like, like China. Um, and this is the strategy that, um, you know, in America they talk about in the State Department, the uh the dragon slayers who are the ones who, who believe that you've got to confront china a little bit and the panda huggers are the ones who think you can be all soft and cuddly with them and barack obama was a panda hugger i mean he believed that you know if we just applied uh normal diplomatic international norms and in relations to the chinese communist party that we we'd advance in mutual interest and mutual benefit um you can only apply that sounds lovely and it's wonderful but it only works if the other party is coming from the same spirit and the same sense of care and concern and trust and interest and mutual benefit. Um, yes, the Chinese say, Communist with- Party it, it doesn't think that way. And so no, Donald Trump's, Trump's approach identify- was much better.
0: You have to identify which nations are just different to you and that you can coexist in the world and you're never going to be able to change their political systems, but you know you can trade safely with them and there's no problem. And nations which have aspirations of world domination. And that may sound like some kind of Bond supervillain thing, but nations on Earth do have aspirations of becoming the global superpowers. We had it with Nazi Germany. We had it with Mussolini to an extent, even though he wasn't capable. Um, And we've got it with China. China wants to be the global dominant force, and they've spent the last 50 years trying to be it. And Xi Jinping has, as you say, a very straightforward plan about how he's going to do that, and that includes treaties like we discussed on your show, the Shanghai a cooperation organization, trade yeah, routes, uh, economically buying friends, like the debt trapping that China does to change the votes in the UN Council. People think that their money is about building roads and uh, train lines and assets. But really, it's about getting a country who holds a seat on the UN to vote in favor. And if you look at how the votes have flipped on the UN, since China gave them money, they've managed to turn the tables in their favor, purely from this economic warfare that they're raging against the rest of the democratic world. Now uh, and also uh, one thing to remember is you, like the Romans, you only build massive transit links across the world if you intend to take it over. Because you have to move artillery across large tracts of land. And if you don't think China's doing that, go have a look at the border between them and India, where they are building entire villages of military arms right on the edge of India to intimidate them into behaving. And uh, I feel sorry for India because they're they're between Russia, Pakistan, uh, the Arab world. And then they've got China on the side. And uh, I I do worry what's going to happen with so many players who have little nuclear weapons at their disposal coming into these global disputes. Now, in in 1997, I think uh, Hong Kong got its first right. That was when the one party, two systems came into effect and half a million people fled Hong Kong. Did that come as a warning sign to you? Did you look at that and think, hmm maybe i should go now or did you decide to stick around that there was a little bit longer in it for you
1: no i just went because the opportunity came up to go i was running a regional um practice group uh part of a regional practice group um one of the leadership and i was flying up to singapore and hong kong to execute to do trainings um corporate training communications training which is what i do and um and so I was, and I was also bouncing around different parts of the region and stuff. And I was just like flying in and out of Melbourne. I was living in Melbourne at the time and it was just exhausting. Um, and an opportunity came up to move my role to Hong Kong. And I thought, well, that'll be a much better central sort of point. I had some friends up there. Uh, and by 2001, when I went, things had kind of settled down a bit from 1997. It was pretty normal. Nothing had really changed enormously Uh, All the British systems were being well respected by China in the early days. They weren't eager to kind of make changes quickly. And so it was an absolute hoot of a place. I mean, it was a fantastic time, free, happy, um, lots of people from all around the world. And it was just a tremendous place to to start a business, I might say. Um, Very, very easy to start a business in Hong Kong, uh, which is something we might want to work on a little bit here. Um, I started a business there that I would never have started in Australia, simply because of the red tape in Australia uh and so that's when i started to change you know i cemented my sort of economic free market liberal sort of ideology and then i started to change socially uh became a little bit more socially conservative uh really it was ben affleck that did that to me it was ben affleck and sam harris uh on tv arguing over um islam and uh And I realized the contradiction that had started to emerge with the rise of identity politics back then. And it was like, hang on a minute, none of my feminist friends, and I had quite a few feminist friends, very high profile ones, were willing to speak out explicitly uh, and publicly against the tenets of Islam uh, that are very sexist. Um, and, And those particular tenets um I know that it doesn't reflect everybody in the religion but it's it's pretty hard to say that those elements don't exist and and that, that we shouldn't be talking about them um and I just found that whole contradiction about this idea that you couldn't criticize Islam because it was um, you know it, it was a uh, an other uh, as the as the political scientist would say or the social scientist would say um you know you can't criticize any minority group um, and I think that's a very racist um america and eurocentric world view
0: it was your mate winston churchill who after his campaigns down in africa pointed out the similarity between hardline islamic uh, religions and of course adolf hitler uh, adult hitler's regime so he pinned that one pretty quickly mm. uh but okay. living next to a, a communist state when you were in hong kong and having china as a shadow over hong kong that didn't make you a communist damien you didn't think yep i want to be more like the parent nation over there you didn't
1: uh, I was terrified every time I, had to, every time I had to get onto a pl- on a plane and fly to Beijing or Shanghai, I was, I was nervous, much more nervous than colleagues. Um, uh, I, I'm sorry, but I think about ideology. I think about the freedom. I value the freedom that we have. I don't take it for granted. And I don't just assume because a country starts operating like a, uh, you know, decides that it wants to be part of the free world's business um, empire uh, and get involved in trade and get involved in um, the free market, playing the free market when it suits them. Uh, without democracy to back it up, Um, I don't believe that that makes everything normal. Um, So I was still pretty concerned about flying into China. Um, I felt relatively safe because I worked for a big multinational company. Not sure I would feel safe under the current president. So things really changed. The big change I noticed, Ellie, was Xi Jinping. When Xi Jinping came to power, the whole thing really changed a lot. And I don't think people in Australia and maybe in America understand this. Xi Jinping is not like his predecessors.
0: He's red as of red Xi Jinping considers yeah. himself a Maoist and a Stalinist yeah. and he yeah. he idolizes the, the Russian uh, the USSR he, he wants to learn from their mistakes and to make sure that his brand of communism uh, ends up as the global dominant force and he has no aspirations of making China uh, a friend of the West um, and he has no aspirations of giving his people freedom liberties or democracy so anyone and who's the last the
1: last thing we need. The last thing we need is a naive American administration that doesn't get that. It doesn't understand the difference between negotiating with a friend or negotiating with somebody in good faith, who acts in good faith, who has a reputation, has built up trust over many years, like an ally, and and trying to negotiate with someone who does not act in or won't perhaps act in good faith. And that's one thing I think Donald Trump understood how to do. He was aggressive on China. He knew that there was going to be pain, economic pain for the United States and for the rest of us, Uh, but he read the mood that people, and I've heard this from people, they're ready to take the pain. The real Aussies, the real Americans who want to stand up for the principles that they believe in, not the inner city uh, elite, um, but the real people in these countries who understand freedom and understand the importance of it, um, are ready to take a little bit of economic pain and maybe pay more for their... Um, products made in China at the supermarket, in order to uh, ensure that we're sending the right signal and the right message, and to protect our liberty and to protect our freedom,
0: uh, well, there and is not a, to sell People who think that if they're nice to China now, they'll be it'll somehow be peaceful. Uh, I don't I can't see the bigger picture, which is that the more you feed a nation like China under Xi Jinping's regime, the more powerful we become, the more liberties it will take with international politics. And soon the pain won't be a a few extra dollars at the supermarket or maybe we don't have quite as much choice because you have to make more things at home or buy from different suppliers. It'll be whole crap. Our entire system of government, our nation is now under threat because we either have a choice of becoming a satellite state of China with no power on the world stage, or indeed we actually become basically feeding China with all of our produce and nothing of our own, no more growth, no more sovereign nation. And we have to put that into proper perspective because we are looking at the world as it was last century when the big superpowers were gearing up for something quite frightening and the people were just as naive. So if you read the political books, at the beginning of of the early 1900s, they thought they were too sophisticated to go to war, that there would not be any more normal warfare and they didn't see two giant wars, the largest humanities ever waged on the horizon. So we must not fall into that trap to think that we are somehow immune to global conflict because we're not Um, and and to that point you said that you were worried living in Hong Kong were you there when things got really bad with the protests with the umbrella protests and when it went from being an internal Hong Kong you might talk about it uh, every now and then to it being the topic of conversation because it was entering the global stage of wow Hong Kong might actually have a serious and permanent problem with safety security and liberty.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I did leave at the end of 2016. We moved to Manila in the Philippines. Um, and I I felt that uh, at that stage, you know, um, Hong Kong was uh, starting to perhaps be a little bit unsafe for the family, um, but it wasn't terribly unsafe. Um, there weren't the riots that we saw in later years at that stage. Um, we just had the umbrella demonstration, the blocking of the street for 11 months, and China did what it, it normally does. Um, I'd just like to point out that that protest... Kelly, in that era, that first umbrella revolution was started out as a protest against a national curriculum being imposed into schools from Beijing, yet we've had laws in Australia, and this is what concerns me about Australia, we've had laws like the absolutely disgraceful um, security law that was passed by the Victorian parliament, um, and nobody bats an eyelid, nobody protests, nobody's particularly concerned about it. If that happened in Hong Kong, you know, they would have hit the streets with just the education bill. A million people hit the streets on the first two days. It was international news like that. And what did Beijing do? They just pulled back, right? Was they just that, stopped
0: was that coming after the kids, like trying to indoctrinate the next generation of children in Hong Kong to bring them more yeah. of communist ideology. Totally, is that what that was yeah. about?
1: Absolutely. So they wanted to to they wanted the schools in Hong Kong who had their own curriculum to introduce the national curriculum of China, which was. Um, you know, obviously, rewrites the history of China and and uh, um, and it's Basically, Xi presents-
0: Jinping worship. They have like him up in the in the um, classrooms. It's very much a a dictatorship style uh, personality cult with Xi Jinping. I don't know. World leaders see him as a very quiet leader, but he's not not in China. It's um, you have to basically worship the Xi Jinping. If you're well, this, in is, China. this is
1: you know this is the thing we forget about. And we don't understand, and certainly Barack Obama and his administration did not understand about Asia and did not understand about Asian culture and Chinese culture in particular, which is that, and this is not a criticism, this is something I say with a great a degree of respect, we have different cultures. And the, the Asian-Chinese culture is one that is uh, very reserved. You know, you don't show your feelings. You don't wear your heart on your sleeve. I remember a, a Chinese guy saying to me once, you know, Americans, the, the way that Chinese look at Americans and Australians is as as you know laughing fools because we're always smiling um and we've always you know we're always quite open and and they see that as a weakness they see that as at times as gullible it doesn't make them nasty people they're lovely people but um you can't negotiate with them the same way that you'd negotiate with uh, someone from the west and that's something that trump actually understood uh, that obama didn't understand and i fear that joe biden and his new crew uh, aren't going to get it either um, but just because to come Joe back, Biden to Biden
0: doesn't even know which country or which uh, if he's running for senate or president, he doesn't even know what he's doing. So I suspect I'm i praying we'll you're have... wrong
1: on that one, but we'll see. Oh, I, um, we'll have a I don't have a lot of faith.
0: Soon. Uh soon. Look, that's all we have time for today, Damien. But thank you okay. so much for joining us here on Curtain Call. It has been a fascinating insight into not only your career but what's been going on with our our neighbours or our ideological kin over in Hong Kong who. I really do fear the worst for, but thank you for joining us, and uh, I hope to have you again one day. My pleasure.
1: My pleasure. I think we should uh, we should just have a, a window for our our fellow British colonial friends in Hong Kong uh, for immigration for a while, and maybe you know pull back on some other places for a bit, um, and and <laughs> save, raise save, and, our, and...
0: save our friends, save our kin.
1: Yeah, yeah. Look after look after our uh, our our fellow. Uh, I guess you know. British colonial culturally aligned people yeah
0: they're part of the empire they're they're like us
1: (laughs) the empire's finished Ellie you have to face it (laughs)
0: no
1: but the good things live on and we just have to start honoring those again and not you know when we were over in
0: Europe, we had uh, sorry we were over in Canada we had a New Zealander and Australia someone from the UK someone from America and some from Canada and we're like, we're all part of the empire except for you, you Americans. You you left the empire. they felt very left out of our little our little bus ride. Anyway, were that of any them Chinese
1: because I find the Chinese Australians, the Chinese Kiwis, and the Chinese um, uh, you know Brits who are here who are who who've grown up with the threat of China. If they come from Taiwan or they come from Hong Kong or even from Singapore, you know they tend to be the feistiest and most viciously patriotic for uh, for Western values. And for, for British uh, for British values as well, I find so, the great people to great people to get to know.
0: Absolutely, they know what they know. What we have and what that we can possibly lose, and what the world looks like without liberty and democracy. Yeah. So and thank our kids you, Damon, and yep. we will see you next week.
1: Right. Okay. Okay. We're so, framed. We're ready. Yeah,
0: this is what we call. Ellie forgot to finish her show properly so I have dragged Damien back for a last question against his will. He's a radio guy and he doesn't appreciate being put in front of the camera. So briefly, (laughs) briefly Damien, if you could have dinner with any historical figure or even figure who is alive, who would it be and why?
1: Okay, so I have given this a bit of thought. I think it would be, and it was a toss-up between Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, but I'm going to go with Reagan. And the reason I'm going to go with Reagan is he was a fantastic communicator, not that Thatcher wasn't, but he was remarkable. And um, uh, he was able to capture the minds of America at a time, of the Americans at a time when, uh, you know, the society was under a fair bit of pressure because he he really started his political campaigns around the mid-60s And some of his early speeches were quite amazing uh, talking about Liberty, talking about freedom before government had gotten as big as it is now. And so, uh, you know, he was, he was operating sort of in a parallel time to where we are now uh, where we've got a culture that's very dominated by a big government state statist, state control sort of uh, mindset um, within the Western countries and we have to try and sell our message of freedom and liberty and free markets and innovation and, and, uh, you know, letting people be and develop and grow and in a, in this environment. And it's really tough. And he did it. Cause he was an incredible communicator.
0: So, so Ronald
1: Reagan, would, wanna, I'd be asking him, how did you do it? Help.
0: I was going to say, would you, <laughs> be you asking, please come
1: forward 50 would, years? Yeah. Would
0: you be asking him for advice is, uh, what I'm trying to get at. Would you be like, please help us. Yeah. I don't see myself
1: as, uh, I don't see myself as presidential material or even prime ministerial, but, uh, I would certainly love to get some tips on how you communicate and change minds. Cause that's what he did. He really changed minds. And that's the, uh, that's the incredibly difficult thing to do it's, uh, it's, it's, it's easy to speak to an echo chamber, but we all want to try and influence people over to our way of thinking. Um, so that we can enjoy more freedom and i think one of the things he did that was very clever that we often forget to do is he never forgot the human element he never forgot to tell the human story and he never let the left own the human story so he took it off them and he said you know don't don't come at us with big government spending is going to save lives and you're going to have better hospitals and education because you're not you're going to have better hospitals better health care better education better aged care better disability care if you adopt more free market principles. You don't run massive debts. You don't run massive in in uh, you know um, inefficient bureaucracies. Uh, but you, it's efficient and it's it's well managed and well run. And there's a degree of competition and there's a degree of respect for innovation. And uh, you know, and and you create a better society that way. So I think he was very clever in that sense. He just he wouldn't cop the idea that oh you know we on the left care about people and health and. He, and everybody on the right just cares about money you know he understood that there's a connection between good economics um good management of money and people's health and welfare and he always made that point i think that's and it's not like it's not like
0: it. the democrats are particularly poor they certainly love their money as well but do you, uh, do, you sure think, do. <laughs> do you think you'd be horrified or amused by the the mess that we have managed to get ourselves into
1: um I think you'd be horrified. I think you'd be saddened by, by where we're at now in terms of where Western liberal democratic culture is um, in the world at the moment. I think you'd be horrified by the rise of China and that we've allowed and enabled uh, economic progress um, under you know, a free market system to flourish uh, in, a, in a country that, is, that has no regard for uh, liberalism or freedom on a political and social level. So I think, yeah, I don't think you'd be too happy looking around the world at the the landscape at the moment.
0: You'd be like, "What have you done, children? What have you done?" Yep, I can hear you. Yes,
1: what have you done? What have you done, children? I left (laughs) you in fairly good shape.
0: Exactly. We've just gone and run amok. Well, thank (laughs) you so much for coming back on and answering my question, and uh, it was wonderful to have you on the show, Damien. Thank you for joining us on Curtain Call. We are hosted by The Good Source, the home of conservative and libertarian voices. Help us fight fake news by following us online. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and all good podcasting services. If you enjoy this content, please like and subscribe.